Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Well, Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, I was up at Matt Miller's church and I had to give them all sorts of background as to where we were at in chapter 4, but with you I don't, as we've been going through this book slowly together. It's here that we will begin to uh, speed up a bit more as we're dealing with the various stories and, and simply what the story is saying. But I want to read for you today, chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, chapter 4, 1 through 12. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be one right before, uh, right underneath the seat in front of you or uh, thereabouts, and I would invite you to take it as we will be looking down at the text. The one thing that one of the distinctives of Missio is that we are committed to the preaching and the exposition of God's Word, therefore we urge you to always have your Word with you and to open and follow along. So in Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, now hear now the word of the Lord. Luke writes, and as they, this is Peter and John, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it is already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. And it came about on the next day that their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem, and Annas, the high priest, was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. And when they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the very cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. May the Lord bless his word. Well, in the age of the internet, you have all of these social posts and, and they go on every day, multiple times uh, a day. I find it interesting with Facebook, though I despise it. Uh, it is interesting for me when uh, up on my page, it pops a memory and you see something that brings you back. Uh, recently, I've seen about the riots 
And what, what you also have are trips that uh, Matt Miller and I have taken to Ethiopia to train the pastors. All of these are little snapshots of, of an event that was taking place at that time. It's not uncommon that you'll have somebody post something on Twitter or on Facebook or some other social media, and, and then uh, a short time later, maybe it's a few months or maybe it's a few years, but a short time relatively later, something happens that makes that post somewhat ironic, let's put it that way. And in that, we will hear people post a new uh, meme or some kind of other post on, on these social media outlets, and they'll start it out with usually a screenshot of what that person had said or posted, and then with the statement, well, that didn't age well, did it? You've all seen that. And it, and it can be actually rather uh, humorous and sometimes a, a little bit uh, of a harsh statement, not in a bad way, but just showing how we all assume things to be true and, and maybe we settle into thinking that that's the way it's going to be and then we find out later on that it didn't age well at all. Well, that's really what's going on here in Acts chapter 4. In a way, what we see in the current passage is something that didn't age well. It's all centered upon the attitude of the people toward the church. Now, if you recall, when we were in chapter 2, verse 47, I did a, ser- a sermon that was about the not normal church. And what I was showing in the last part of Acts 2 is a series of things that God was doing in the church at that time that we should not see as normal. They're not normative. They're not for us necessarily today. God may do some of them, but these were unique things God was doing. And one of them was in verse 46 or 7, where the church in the early days was described as having favor with all the people. Well, now, in just a short time later, we now find that this favorable attitude is beginning to change. But right now, it's not with the populace. The people still have a favorable perspective. But right now, it's starting with the leadership. Now, everything in this passage is built around the repetition of a specific term that controls the passage. We see this word used in verse 7, 10, and 12. The word or term is name. If I were you, I would simply take the time to circle or underline the word name in verse 7, 10, and 12, and then draw a quick line to each one lightly so that you can see that connection. And years from now, when you open up your Bible, you'll be drawn to that idea. Everything in this passage is based off of the idea that the apostles were preaching in the name of Jesus Christ. They were performing miracles in the name of Jesus Christ. They were calling on the people to believe in the name of Jesus Christ, so on and so forth. Everything centers around this name, the name of Jesus. Now, in chapters 4 through 7, what you're going to see is a series of ever-increasing confrontations that will build up to the point where the people literally stone to death Stephen as he preaches about Jesus. So by chapter 7, a man will be stoned to death because of the name of Jesus. So in a sense here, what we have in these chapters is a description of how quickly things can change from fun times, exciting times, 
to hard times and, and very challenging times. If you will, the honeymoon stage for the church is done. And now the real work begins. But in this passage, it also shows the unalterable reality of the exclusive demands of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is my goal today. I want to drive that home for everyone here. The unalterable reality of the exclusive demands of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news. Four exclusive truth claims are going to be pointed out here. All of them related to the name of Jesus. And then I'll seek to bring that to us today and apply it. So with that, we'll just jump right into the passage. And the very first one I'm going to draw out of chapters, uh, uh, verses 1 and 2, that there are, is no other name to proclaim. Four truths about the name of Jesus, and the first is there is no other name for which you might proclaim. Now, we see that, that they were speaking to the people. Now, we have some players that then show up into this storyline, and you need to understand them. So let me take a quick moment to help you. We see, first of all, Peter and John are there because it's not that he, being Peter, was speaking, but they were speaking. Remember that this all is started in chapter 3, that Peter and John were going to the temple to pray. They healed a man that was born, and he was lame, and everyone knew of this man, and now he's been healed, he's jumping up, he's praising God, and the crowd has come, and Peter then preached to them. After this preaching... The people are still there, and he and John are now talking to them, and he's inter- they're interacting with them because they're, they're amazed that this healing took place. But in that, they are saying just simply one name, they're having one message, and that's all they are doing. Now, along with that, then you have this captain of the guard who shows up. Now, you don't know who he is likely, uh, unless maybe you have a good study Bible and you're looking. The captain of the guard was essentially second in command. He was second only to the high priest. He oversaw the temple police. Along with that, we have these people called the Sadducees. They were Levitical priests who claimed to represent ancient orthodoxy. They were interesting. In fact, this whole world of that Christ and the apostles dwelt in was very interesting. The, The Sadducees claimed to represent ancient orthodoxy. They, they opposed any development of biblical law. That's very different than the Pharisees. The Pharisees were always developing the law. They were changing it and adjusting it in accordance to the various rabbinical teachings. But the Sadducees were saying, no, just the Old Testament is sufficient. We don't need to be changing that and adapting it to our times. But along with that, they were people who denied the idea or doctrine of a bodily resurrection. And so they would disagree strongly with Peter's preaching on the resurrection, specifically on the resurrection of Jesus, but also then the promise that in that, there's a promise of resurrection for us. They believed also along with that, not in a literal Messiah, Remember what I've been beating to death in various ways in chapters 2 and 3, how Peter is showing time and time again in the Scripture, the Old Testament, these promises given to Israel that there would be one who would be the Christ or the Messiah, right? You've heard that from me multiple times. 
Understand that the Pharisees, I mean the Sadducees, did not accept that. There was not a Messiah that was coming. There was not a a specific man. And there was not going to be a messianic kingdom where the Messiah would make all things right and the enemies would be put under his feet. Instead, they saw it as an idealized concept, something that was a, a, a bit more broad and vague. And they thought that this messianic kingdom began with what was known as the Maccabean Rebellion. And you can learn about that. uh, There's plenty of material on it. But that was what was going on between the Old and the New Testament was this rebellion and was run by this family and, and it's called the Maccabean Rebellion. If you've ever heard of the story of Masada, that's all connected to that and the Battle of Masada. And they thought that that was the beginning of this golden age. And in it, there would be this messianic reality existing. And then in comes Peter, and he's talking about a Messiah, and that this Messiah was Jesus, and that they killed him. Now, during all of this time, the rebellion uh, during that middle time between the Old and the New Testament Um, the nation of Israel essentially gave up political and economic control to what's known as the Sanhedrin. And I'll explain that a little bit later. The Sanhedrin, though, was a council, a formal, kind of like the Senate. And And the nation as a whole basically gave up all autonomy, and they gave that authority to the Sanhedrin, and, and this was made up of the elite ruling class of the day. These were the priests and the religious leaders, and they were made up primarily of men who preached tolerance and cooperation with the Roman government. The Pharisees, not so much. They didn't like the Roman government, and they were very nationalistic. The Sadducees, who were the bulk of the Sanhedrin, they were saying, we need to get along with them, we need to cooperate with them, and we need to just make things work. The bulk of the Sanhedrin, as I just said, was made up of the Sadducees. The minority would be the Pharisees. In fact, the temple guard itself were all Levites. The captain of the temple guard was always a Sadducee, and each of the high priests was always a Sadducee. Understand this. In all of this, what you're actually seeing is what we see being played out before us in our own nation that these people, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, had very little interest in biblical truth. It was all about power. It was all about maintaining a power base. Now, with that background, notice in verse 1, as they, John and Peter, were speaking. Now, this is a key point to be made because the apostles were in the process of preaching to the people. They're teaching. They're speaking And they're talking to a crowd that has come around them due to this healing in the name of Jesus Christ. But what would be the message? What what is it that they're speaking about? Is it just general well-being and how to get your life going better and what you need to change or anything like that? No, it was to repent and to believe in Jesus as a promised one from God. They were, in fact, declaring that God had sent him. This is all of what Peter talked about in chapter 3, that Jesus was the promised servant that Moses, who they all loved and admired, had prophesied about. 
Moses said, and you can see it there in verse 26 of the chapter before, in chapter 3, he said, For you first, God raised up his servant, who was Jesus, sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Who is this one? It was the one that Moses had spoken of, and we talked about that in my last sermon. So here is this message that they were speaking of the one who was the servant, the one who was the the seed, the one who was the son, the one who was the Messiah, the Christ, the promised one. And they crucified him and God raised him from the dead. This is what they were talking about. And in light of that, they said, what he is calling you to do is to turn from your wicked ways and turn to Jesus. Now, my point here is not real deep. It's very simple but it's also very important. And that is that there is, simply put, beloved, for you and I, just like the apostles, no other name for which we might be busy proclaiming. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have no other message. Apart from Jesus Christ, there is nothing else worth talking about because nothing else is the answer. Nothing else is a better way, and you have no other options. Again, not deep. I think most of us, if we were given a multiple choice question or true false, something like that, that we would happily say absolutely. The question is, does it manifest itself, though, in how you function, how you live and act? Are you convinced, like the apostles, that there is no other message to be speaking about? Now, notice in verse 2 that we see the content of the words of the apostles. What were they busy teaching the people? About what? Well, it was about Jesus. But at the core of the message was the truth that in Jesus was life. They're proclaiming that Jesus, in Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. So So found in Jesus is life. Only there, that if you have Jesus, then there is the hope of the resurrection. In Jesus, there is life. Now, you can add to that everything that Peter had talked about prior to that as well in that full understanding of Jesus as the resurrection. He is a true life, that in there is a promise of the resurrection. And the end result of that is that the Sanhedrin, the council, becomes greatly disturbed. Why? Well, because this is the enemy from which no one can escape. No one can escape death. The way the Sadducees dealt with it is, look, you're going to die and there is no resurrection. That's how they resolved it. That's how our people in our nation basically resolve it, right? Is after you die, that's it. The reality, though, is death is what hounds every one of us all the time, and we don't like to admit it. And we spend a lot of time and massive amounts of money avoiding it as if we can, even though we know that God has appointed for each of us a day that we will die, we do not live with that truth. We're terrified of it. When we're young, we talk arrogantly like we'll never die, but as we get old, we do a lot of thinking about it. And they're messing up the system that the Sanhedrin had put in place. 
Well, it has to be true for us as well, beloved. We have to be convinced that we have no other message in which we can give. We have to be clear in our life upon whom we represent and in whose name we come. In other words, what I'm saying to you is that you and I cannot be about a political position, a sports team, our racial makeup, or anything else that is superior or supreme or more prominent than Jesus. So let me ask you that in just before the Lord. I don't want you to speak to me. I want you to just right now ask yourself before God, was that true? What do you represent? What is seen about you that people know? When they, when they talk about you, when they think about you, who do you represent? Make no mistake here, beloved. It must be the name the name of Jesus. We have nothing else that we can give. Notice the leaders are specifically upset because it was Jesus who was being taught about. It was Jesus who was being proclaimed. There was not a mix-up in the message. It's not like the Sanhedrin thought that they were teaching about Buddha and, hey, we got to stop this. No, what's going on is that the men, Peter and John, were talking about the name of Jesus and describing what it meant to trust in this risen one and what they must do. They know what's being said, and they're correct in, the, in fact, what the message was. They heard it rightly. They, they heard that in Jesus there would be the resurrection from the dead. The problem is they just didn't believe it. And in the same way, beloved, what I'm trying to say in this first point is that you and I have to be so clear about what we talk about when we talk about Jesus. We need to be so clear that even though they reject it, they know why they're rejecting it. I don't accept this. I do not believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I do not believe Jesus existed. I do not believe that in Jesus is forgiveness. Whatever it is, but you and I, we are responsible to declare clearly who is Jesus. And if they reject it, they reject it. But that is who we live by and for and live in, this name of Jesus. Now, with that in mind, though, and I, and I think it's fairly obvious to any of you who has begun to become more, more bold about what you believe, you discover that it creates a line in the sand, don't you? Some of you, maybe you've never had to draw that line because you've made it your effort to be somewhat vague. The time is coming, and I would say, beloved, that that, that that is passing away. There will be a day that you will have to declare where your allegiance lies. But for some of you, I know for a fact that you are, in fact, being faithful to declare yourself as one who believes and follows Jesus Christ. He is the name in which you find all of your identity. And the moment you do that, the line is drawn, isn't it? There is no other message for you. The name of Jesus will not be minimized by you. It will not be hidden by you. It is still a message that is faithful to Jesus Christ. That is your life. When people ask you where your hope is, it's not in your exercise regime. It's not in some chemical or whatever it is that you are doing to yourself. It's not in the education system, in the job situation. It's nothing it ultimately is found in the name of Jesus. That's, that's your hope. 
But, beloved, it will always end up leading to the real possibility of suffering and persecution. That takes us to my second point, that there is no other name for which to suffer. If you buy into the first step that there is no other name to proclaim, then you'll quickly discover that there is also no other name for which to suffer. In verse 3 and then in verses 5 through 7, he says, And they laid hands on them, they be in the temple guard, and on them is John and Peter, but also, unfortunately, the poor guy who got healed. They lay hands on them, and they put him in jail because it's nighttime. In other words, they have to be dealt with. They're creating a huge issue. And so they need to shut this down. They need to shut it down now. Unfortunately, it's nighttime and it's coming to evening. And so they're not going to have time to deal with it that day. So what are we going to do? Well, we'll just arrest them and put them in jail. We'll deal with it tomorrow. All they're doing is simply seeking to control the situation and stop the preaching. Now, listen, that's how persecution almost always will start. It's not that you're walking around and you love Jesus and then some guy walks up and puts a gun to your head and pops you one. That's just not how it works. Now, it may work on occasion, but that's not normal. The way persecution starts is that you won't shut up. And because you won't shut up about the name, they got to shut you up. And that's where we begin to play the games, right? We start shutting up. We start figuring out, well, we can't talk here, we can't talk here, we can't talk about. And, and basically, we start giving up ground, and we, we just say, well, okay, well, we won't talk here, and we won't talk there, and we won't talk over there either. And we keep thinking that, well, in that, we're just, we're going to be able to maintain our presence. The problem is Christ is so so absolute in his demands, he, he creates a separation. There will come a day for every person where you will have to declare your allegiance, right? Whom do you believe? The Lord is so good about that, though it's kind of scary to think about, that he will simply take you, those of you here who are so reluctant to confess the name of Jesus, but you believe in him, your hope rests with him. There will come a day, beloved, that God will just literally force you until there is nowhere else to go and you just say, I believe. This is what I believe. Because that's how God works. It's an all or nothing affair. You will declare Jesus as Lord because he's Lord. So always understand that persecution will will start by shutting you up. Now, there's a lot of ways that you can suffer. Not any of these I'm going to list are bad ways. I would say that all of these are worthy of of suffering and persecution. You can suffer to protect your wife and family, right? You can stand for justice or freedom. You can stand in defense for your nation. That's a good one that you might want to suffer for. You may align yourself with others who are undergoing persecution and stand with them so as to shoulder the burden with them. All of those are fine, and all of those may occur for you as well, but they are never the supreme reason. What's strange 
for me, and, and, and be, take me with the, I hope I've been with you long enough that you, you understand I'm not here to beat on something. But it fascinates me today that we are willing to suffer the loss of our job over a vaccine, but we would never suffer the loss of our job for the name of Jesus. That's my point. I'm not even saying that you shouldn't. I, I'm greatly appalled at what our nation is doing. I am saying we find it very easy to say, fine, I'll quit. But with the name of Jesus, we'll be silent. My point today is you can't be silent. You don't have to be a jerk about it, but you cannot be silent. Now, in verses 5 through 7, this persecution is described in a unique way. We have some more characters involved, so I need to explain them. In verse 15, they talk, talk about this thing called the council. It's nothing more than the Sanhedrin, which probably doesn't help you. But what happens is the next morning, they're, they're, they're taken out of jail, and they're brought before this Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the Senate or the Supreme Court. They were supreme in the land. It consisted of the high priest who served as presiding officer, and along with that, there were 70 others who would serve. They were aristocratic members. The majority of them would be the Sadducees. The minority would be the Pharisees. Along with that, these were those who were the experts in the Jewish law, the Pharisees. They were also very nationalistic. They hated the Romans. The Sadducees, as I said before, supported the Romans. The Sadducees, weirdly, were more conservative in their belief. But they were wrong in their faith. They, they believed falsely about the resurrection. They rejected it. Strangely, most people think of the Pharisees as the conservatives, but they weren't. They were actually the liberals. They, they accepted not just the Old Testament, but all of the oral traditions from the rabbinic teachers. If you ever want to read some of that, it's in the Mishnah and the Midrash and the Talmud. Don't go there. It's, I mean, you'll despair of life if you start reading it. But that's what is part of their belief system. The Sanhedrin would hold its meetings, including the one that's described in this chapter, in this part of the temple called the Chamber of the Hewn Stone. Now, if you were part of the temple, there would be the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, and, and after that, no, no woman could ever go past that spot. Um, and then the rest would be where the men were at. And then in there, you'd come into the center part where there's the altar. And there was a gate, and you would enter through that with your sacrifice. And then it, right behind the altar was the butchering area. And if you imagine, there's a lot of butchering going on because there's a lot of sin going on. And so you would bring your animal, they would be butchered, and then you would wait your turn to go and stand at the altar, confess your sin, and all of this would be taken care of. Well, behind all of that was this room called the Chamber of the Hewn Stone, and that was where they conducted these types of trials. Out of sight, out of mind, the general public is not invited. 
Along with that, you would have in that room, and they, they describe it, the rulers. These were just simply priests who, and, and all the priests, uh, Levites, they all had to serve a certain time in the calendar year in the temple. And when they were doing that, they were known as the rulers. Then you had the elders. These were influential, godly men um, of the various tribes and towns. And then you had the scribes who were teachers of the law. And individuals of all of these would make up this body known as the Sanhedrin, though most of them also would identify as Sadducees, though a few as Pharisees. Annas is mentioned here as as the high priest in verse 6. Technically, he's not the high priest. Caiaphas was the high priest, who's also mentioned here. So why is Annas mentioned the high priest? The same way that we mention uh, President Obama is still president, even though President Obama is not the president or President Bush, or anybody else. They retained the title even after they're finished with their time. Annas was exceedingly politically powerful. Caiaphas was his son-in-law, and they exerted extremely strong level of influence. So, what's this got to do with persecution? Well, imagine. Imagine that you're minding your own business, you're talking about Jesus, and you're not afraid of it. You're, you're just exercising your freedom of speech. And the next thing you know, you're snagged by people, part of the homeland security, and then you're taken away, and, and then you're just put in a jail cell. And you're like, what is going on? Don't tell me you wouldn't be afraid. And then imagine you that you're now pulled out the next day and you're now taken to a private tribunal of some very powerful people and no one knows you're there. And you tell me you wouldn't be shaking in your boots. That's what's going on here. This is not just a little story. This is scary. This is frightening. They went from having favor among all the people to now they're in jail and now they're standing in trial and they have to give an answer. And so the apostles are now giving an answer to the council and if you can do it, I hope you can see how difficult this would be. These are the people connected with the death of Jesus. These were the ones who set up false testimony. These were the ones who have final say of all things regarding religion. This is all going on behind the scenes, and these two men find themselves there, and the poor guy who was healed. Now, something happens in times of stress that I find very useful and helpful as a pastor. I very seldom am impressed with anyone, Not that that matters, but I find myself very seldom impressed with anyone as I watch their life be conducted during the good times. Anyone can be godly and and proper when it's time that's fun, right? It's the time of stress and, and hardship and suffering where the real you comes out. It's in those times that I always watch very carefully. I watch for texts, I watch for Facebook posts, I watch for prayer requests, I watch their demeanor, I watch their, their attendance, I watch their, their practices and their, their uh, yeah, their practices. All of this, because all of it is reflecting how they're bearing up under persecution. 
Everything that's fake about you goes away in the time of persecution. Remember what Peter is like before he was standing there being confronted by a servant girl and he's terrified of her and denies Jesus Christ. Now he's standing here in front of the Sanhedrin. What will he do? Well, there's something radically different about him now. He has seen the risen Christ, right? He knows that Christ is, in fact, the Messiah. He's seen him. And second, he has the Spirit given to him. And those two things together are sufficient that he is now convinced that there is no other name that he can speak or stand or be identified by. So you have two fishermen standing before the elite of the elite, and they stand firm. No idea what's going to happen to them, but they don't care. They're committed to their message. They're committed to their purpose. They are committed to the name. Now, that's what verse 7 centers around, right? And when they had placed him in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? Well, it's the name of Jesus that the healing had occurred. It was the name of Jesus that Peter and John were preaching to the people to repent and return to the promised Savior. And what we'll see, Lord willing, next week is that at the end of this time, the questioning, there are threats, but they don't actually commit violence. Right now, it's just threats. But remember, in a few more chapters, there'll be stonings. But it's the beginning of the ramping up. But they didn't know that. They didn't know they would be let go with threats. And so through this question in verse 7, what the the Sanhedrin does is they open up an opportunity for them to say something. And they take it. And they take it quickly. And so they have an opportunity to proclaim something, and so preach is what they do. Peter then opens up his mouth, and he talks about Jesus. Now let's go back in time, though, first. What was it that they were proclaiming? In verse 4, we see that it was Jesus, that there is no other name in which to believe. So not only is it no other name to proclaim or no other name for us to suffer for, but it's also no other name for you here in this room to believe. This is where you have to find your hope and rest. In verse 4, notice it says, but many of those outside, this is before the arrest, many of those, where am I at? Uh, Who had heard the message believed. And the number of men was about 5,000. So we're back in time a little bit, but understand here we have this massive number of men coming to faith. Why does it talk about men? Because that's where they were preaching. No women were allowed. No Gentiles were allowed. It was Jewish men and only Jewish men, and there are a ton of them there, and they heard him preach, and 5,000 thereabouts came to faith. Now picture the ripple effect that that would have. These were men, and they would go home, and they would tell their wives, they would tell their children, all who were in their household. And in that culture, when the father believes, everyone comes with it. They're going to believe as well. It's a huge event. And that's what's actually behind the whole arrest. The the Sadducees are threatened because they have a whole different message. Think about what the Sadducees were always preaching. They would say, believe us and what we teach. They would be saying, well, this man, Jesus, did live, but he died. And why did he die? Because he was a false prophet and a false messiah. They would say that this man, Jesus, is still dead. The fact that we don't know where his body is is simply because the people who followed him stole his body. 
And instead they say, we, we the Sadducees are the keepers of the truth. We are the ones who know what's right. So just follow us and don't you dare follow Jesus. And then two fishermen come walking in saying the exact opposite. Peter is saying, not follow me, follow Jesus. Everything else is about Jesus. He and the others are there only because they come in the name of Jesus. He is the authority and he is their message. They are performing their miracles, not in their power with a look at me kind of mindset, but they are doing this all because of the name of Jesus. The people believe this message. And to believe the message is to believe in the what? The name. The name of Jesus. Now think back about what he's already taught in chapters 2 and 3. How many times Peter took all of those Old Testament passages and showed how they applied to Jesus, that he was the fulfiller of them. Think about the hard words that he said to them about their responsibility and their guilt before God. They murdered him. The call to repent, the call to be baptized in the name of Jesus, to become followers of Jesus. There was no other name that they could proclaim, no other name or option given to them. It was to believe in the name of Jesus or don't. That's it. Beloved, it's the same for you and I. I I have faced over the years countless times where somebody wants to meet with me and talk and they want to discuss problems in their life, hardships, concerns, whatever it might be. And it's very common and it's normal in a broken, sinful world. And I begin to talk to them. Invariably, I begin to talk to them about Jesus Christ. And it's interesting because at times I'll get pushback. Not quite frequently, I'll get the pushback. And, And they're like wanting to do this and wanting to do that. There comes a point where I'll look at a person. I'm like, I don't know what you want from me, but I got nothing else for you. I'll literally say it that way. I, I, I just got nothing else for you. I've got Jesus. That's it. And this is who Jesus is. And this is what Jesus promises to those who commit themselves to him as Lord. And this is what is awaiting you if you reject him. But that's all I got. I got Jesus. Beloved, I commend that to you. You're going to get people who will push you back. They'll get people who mock you, people who will just dismiss you. But when they do, don't try some other message because there is no other message. You just give them Jesus. This takes us back then to the questioning by the council in verses 5 through 7. They want to know by whose authority... These men are acting this way. By whose authority or name do they think they can create such a ruckus on these most holy of grounds? By whose name do you do that? And that leads us to our last point in verses 8 through 12. There is no other name to find salvation. Peter again is the spokesman. And by the power of the Spirit, he now addresses these this group. This is that unique filling I've taught in the past about. It doesn't happen all the time, nor is it the state of being where you're always in like this. 
But it's those moments where God may choose to cause the Spirit to come upon you in such a way that you are emboldened and strengthened. You might prophesy, you might preach very powerfully, you might heal, you might do something else. These are unique moments in space and time where the Spirit of God works. That's what happens here. But I want you to notice that he's not being disrespectful. In verse 8, he says, filled with the Spirit, rulers and elders of the people. So he starts out being respectful. He's not trying to be improperly harsh or arrogant in speech. He, he, he does convey to them the respect due to their office. But beloved, that respect doesn't keep him from spe- being honest because he quickly gets very honest. So notice verses 9 and 10. If we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. Notice the wording. He's very blunt points out that the, the, the whole problem right now is simply this. We healed somebody. In the name of Jesus, we took a man that nobody else could fix, and in the name of Jesus, he's healed. That's why we're here. You've seen a man healed from affliction, and what is your response? Arrest them. That's how unbelief works. Unbelief looks at something good and right and God-given, and they mock it, they hate it, they react against it, they suppress it. You saw it with Jesus, right? Jesus goes and casts out a demon without any problem, and what do the, the leaders do? Oh, he does that by the power of Satan. Do you really think you're going to be any different? When you talk about Jesus Christ, when you talk about hope in Jesus Christ, do you really think that you're you're so clever that you can do it and not offend somebody? Do you understand how narrow the gospel call is? Brutally narrow. There is no room. There is no playground where we can be vague. I come to you in the name of Jesus Christ and there is salvation and no one else but Jesus Christ. I bid you come, bow, believe, follow. And you watch how quickly the people react. Unbelief pushes against that. Romans 1 says that we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's just what we do. We're enemies until God makes us alive together with Jesus Christ. So get it through your mind. And if you will, it will actually free you. Some of you are so afraid of sharing the gospel because you're still not sure that you can do it without a cost. It'll cost you. Beloved, it's going to cost you. So get get over it. Get past that. Whatever it is that you are worried about, accept the fact that God is not going to remove that fear from you until you bow before him as superior over that fear. Your reputation, your job promotion, your friends, your family, your relationship with your boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever it might be, it will cost you. 
embrace it. But if you will accept that, it frees you. Speaking the truth will ultimately lead to some sort of rejection by those who do not believe in Jesus. No matter how many good things you say or how carefully you word it, ultimately the name of Jesus will always divide. Now there's a play of wor- on words here that you can't see in the English, but it's there. In verse 9 and 12, you see the word, if you're using my translation, um, as to how this man has been made well. Made well is one word, it's the word sozo. There's a chiropractic clinic in our town, the sozo clinic, um, based off this word. In verse 12, the same word is now translated as we must be saved, and that's the word, sozo. Sozo means to be saved or delivered or, or made well or whole or restored, and so it's a very broad word. We tend to think that word has always to do and only with our personal salvation, but it's much bigger than that, and he actually does that. So now we can look at what he says by emphasizing some key details. They, they asked by what name Peter and John were operating under, and he says it's in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene. Why that way? Well, that removes any doubt who he's talking about. He doesn't get vague. He gets blunt and short and clear. Why? Well, if he's going to suffer, at least he'll suffer for the right reason. If you're going to suffer, beloved, at least do it for Jesus. Don't be so vague that you're getting assaulted in some way or hated or demoted. But when you ask them why they're firing you or whatever it is, it has nothing to do with the name of Jesus. And somehow you missed it. They want to make sure that you know what you're going to be punishing them for. No wiggle room. He's Jesus. That's his name. He's from Nazareth. Now we know his birth town. But he's also the Messiah, the Christ. That's who we come and preach. This Jesus that you, the spiritual leaders, you had crucified. So he confronts them with their guilt. This Jesus whom God raised from the dead, he confronts them with their false doctrine and the hope of life, that if he truly is the Messiah, he didn't fail. In fact, he reigns. That this is the reason the man was healed, not because of Peter, not because of John, but because of Jesus, the risen Jesus. And then in verse 11, he does something interesting. He quotes Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is a passage that they all would understand as talking about the Messiah, the Christ. And he quotes it, he says, he, Christ, is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders. Now, what's he doing there? Well, he's actually smacking them, verbally smacking them. Now, picture what's happening. The Sanhedrin would have a very high view of themselves. We are the godly ones. We are the holders of truth. We are the ones you should listen to. We are the ones who know all things. Doctrinally, we are the theological giants. You guys are the peons, on and on and on. In other words, they're the builders. Now, when I go to the, uh, the hardware store and I bring my son-in-law with me, who is a builder, I'm ready to pick up the two-by-fours, and I have no problem just grabbing two-by-fours and sticking them on the cart. 
Tom, on the other hand, spends 20,000 hours looking at every two-by-four and rejecting the vast majority of them because they're not acceptable. Right? Have you ever been with a builder? And they spend all that time, and, and you're like, what was wrong with that one? You're thinking, I'm never leaving this store. But he's a builder, and he knows what he wants, Right? And I will tell you that at the end of the day, those walls go up a lot better when Tom's around than when I'm around. Because he builds, and he's a builder. He knows quality, right? So what is, what's, what's Peter doing? You're the builders. And here's Jesus. You're looking for the cornerstone, the right stone, the foundation stone that everything else will be built off of. And you look at him as the builders, and you say no. Do you see how crushing what he said is to them? How, how that would offend them? God gave you the cornerstone, and you looked at it and or him and said, Yeah, not that one. They should have recognized Jesus, but instead they rejected him. He was not worthy to be used as the cornerstone, the chief stone. And that's where we come then to verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. They're focusing on the healing of a lame man. That's who they're, what they're focusing on. He's been delivered or saved from the crippling effects of his lameness that dominated his life. And Peter turns it to a whole different answer a whole different kind of salvation. Now, understand that he's not just talking about personal salvation, but Israel's salvation. And I would commend you to go back to my sermon before to hear that and how complex this salvation is. Repent and return that your sins may be blotted away, that the times of refreshing may come, and that Jesus may return. Those three things are connected to when Israel as a nation repents. There is no other name that God has given by which you might be delivered, not just as an individual, but as a nation. Again, it's the offer to the nation to repent and believe, and they reject him. But all of this is confronting their idea of the Messiah, the kingdom, everything else. And he is saying, look, there is nothing else out there but Jesus. There is no other name to proclaim. There is no other name that's worth suffering for. There is no other name to believe in. And there is no other name that any of you will find salvation. Now, this sermon is not deep. I know that. None of you were pressed to keep up with the words. But it's a very important message. And so I'm going to talk to you right now just as a pastor to the people, you. And I want to talk to you as individuals. I want you to try to listen to me as in that, that I'm just meeting with you in your home and we're just talking. First of all, as Christians, the only thing that really matters in the end is what do you do with Jesus? What are you doing with him? As Christians, that means that there is only one thing that ultimately matters in your life. There's only one thing that's going to matter in your words. Only one thing. It's Jesus. He and he alone is to be the basis of your life and deeds. That you represent him and him alone. 
Nothing else can be higher and nothing else can define you. It means that Jesus is the only name you proclaim to a world that cannot save itself. For some of you, you need to begin to change your message. It will not be through violence. It will not be through resistance. It will not be through whatever it is that you think or you're talking about. It has to be and only be Jesus. You have to believe this. It means, beloved, that if you're going to suffer, let it be for the name of Jesus. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 3. He says, sanctify, set Christ as Lord in your heart, he says. In chapter 3, verses 15 to 17, always being ready, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who gives, asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Well, what is that hope? It's the name of Jesus. but with gentleness and reverence and keep a good conscience. Why? So that in the thing in which you are slandered, there comes this persecution. In the thing in which you are slandered, who those who revile, that's strong, revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better. Now here is where you have to decide if you believe this. It is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for what is wrong. You do not want to be a man or woman suffering because you're a thief, a liar, a drunkard, a reviler, a manipulator, a swindler, an idolater. That's not what you want to be known for. It is better for you that you suffer, if God should will it so, for the name. And you say, well, I don't know if that's going to happen. I was tempted to do it up in Milwaukee. I chose not to. I'm, I'm curious, how many of you want to live a godly life? Just put your hand up. Yeah, that's what I figure. I mean, who's like, oh, no, I'm not putting my hand up. <laughs> All right. You want to live godly in Christ. 2 Timothy 3.12. Peter, I mean, Paul promises this. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So what are you avoiding? There is no way out except not live godly in Christ Jesus. There's no way out, beloved. Does it mean you look for it? No. But you can't hide from it because there's no way you can hide from it and live godly in Christ Jesus. It is the name that matters. So my charge to you who are Christians here, make it sim- I'll make it simple. Make it only and always about Jesus. Now, those of you who don't believe in Jesus... That's the message I have for you, and that's the message every person in this room who follows Jesus has for you. You, you might be thinking, Mom and Dad, I, I can wear them down. No, not if they're followers of Jesus. They'll never wear down. You can leave the house, 
And then you can come home in tears because this has happened and that, and this is life. And what you discover out there in the big bad world is that it is a big bad world. It is a fallen world. And that everyone is out for themselves and is broken. Some of you are in the middle of that broken world trying to figure out the answer, right? You got it. You need it. And yet you get frustrated because you keep coming back to church and we don't have anything else to offer you but Jesus. Your mom and dad will keep telling you it's Jesus. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's still Jesus. I got nothing else for you. It's going to be always Jesus. It's interesting, in John 6, there's this place in time where all these people started abandoning Jesus because of what he was teaching. They didn't like it. So he looks at his disciples and he says, what about you? What do you believe? And Peter speaks there in John 6. He says, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. There's nowhere else to go. Isn't that what Peter says here? There is no other name given by which man might be saved. You... Where you want to go, you go. But I will tell you this, beloved, there is no other way. Jesus is not a way. The Bible doesn't allow that. He is the only way to God. And every other way is false. Jesus is not a truth among many truths. He's the source of truth. And only in him will you ever find truth. Jesus is not a way to life. He is the only way to live or not a way to life. He's the only way to live. He is life, a life where sin and death can be destroyed. But it all comes from turning from your ways to Jesus alone. So let me leave you with this thought, and and I want to be as blunt as I can. For you who sit here, and you've heard this and heard this, and you walk away and you reject it, you reject it. But understand that there's nothing else out there that God has given by which you might be saved. There's nothing else that you will find that will end sin or give you life. The only thing that you have is Jesus. And beloved, that's the message you give to your friends, your family, your coworkers. When you have those opportunities and all you got to do is wait for the opportunity, God will give it to you. You have to speak, and the, and the message is Jesus. Let's pray. So, Father, as we now prepare to go home, I pray that that would be true for all of us, that we would receive that admonition, that we'd understand that this is what you call us to be and to do, that we'd love you all the more. We thank you for your patience with us because it's easy to preach about this, but then when you're facing that person and you're, you're afraid, that it's easy to fall to the fear. So I pray that the Spirit would embolden us, that we would find out on the other side of it it wasn't as bad as we thought it would be, but that we would speak and love and proclaim and even suffer for the name. Let's be found faithful in that, that that brings you the glory and us the hope. I ask in your Son's holy name, amen.